add passion and stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly podcast about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. I'm in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore. Good morning. Um, who's often part of these podcasts, and two really special guests. We've got Eric Bruner Yang, really incredible chef and restaurateur here in the Washington area with three restaurants. Uh, Eric, thrilled that you're here and can't wait to hear about what you're up to. Happy to be here. That's me. Thanks for inviting. <laughs> um, and Bill Novelli, who I've known for uh, quite a long time and who uh, is a man who wears many, many hats. Uh, how we'll get this conversation down to a reasonable time, uh, Bill, I don't know because there's so many things that we want to ask you about. We're thrilled to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. One of the things that I want to do is start by letting folks know what you're each doing now and then talk a little bit about your path to it. Bill, I know you're teaching at at Georgetown University and also very active with the Global Social Enterprise Initiative, but your career before that includes running AARP, which is, you know, one of the most, I guess, potent, powerful nonprofits in the country, starting the PR firm and communications firm Porter Novelli, co-founding that, playing the critical leading role in the campaign for tobacco-free kids. Um, So many things. But um, I guess, tell us, where did it start for you? What was the very beginning? Well, the very beginning was, um, believe it or not, selling soap. So I was a You're an ad guy? I'm an ad guy. I'm a marketing guy. I was a rookie at Unilever. Went through sales training, worked my way up to becoming a brand manager, worked on laundry detergents and toothpaste and uh, fabric softeners and you name it. Then I, you know, in those days, that was mad, mad men in those days. And uh, the idea was you're supposed to work the client side, which was Unilever, and also the advertising agency side. So I went to a big, hot New York agency, Wells Rich Green run by probably the most famous woman in the history of American advertising. and uh, Which is who? Mary Wells. Mary Wells. Mary Wells. Okay. She, she, uh, one of the things she did was to marry a client, which in those days was, uh, we, we used to say that's an interesting way to save an account. Uh, so so um, uh, at Wells Rich Green, I was supposed to bring marketing discipline to this enormously creative uh, shop. And I was working on cat food and dog food and kids' cereals and whatever. And I had the same problem I had at Unilever, which was um, I was making money, no heavy lifting. I had all these little kids. Everything was great. But there was no social relevance. And I was having a, t- a real problem with that. And I thought, I, I, I need to change careers. But how? Why? Where? And uh, the ad agency gave me uh, a new account, public television. And it was the first time that they had ever hired an ad agency to try to build uh, viewership. And so the first thing I did was to go to a press conference, and it was run by a woman named Joan Gantz Cooney. And she stood up there and started talking, and she said, we're here to talk about revolutionizing kids' education on TV. And she announced Sesame Street. And I was listening to this woman, and I thought to myself, you know, she's an educator, but what she really is is a marketing person. And uh, this light bulb went on, uh, and I thought to myself, and I'd had this thought before, that um, you could apply marketing, yes, to cat food, yes, to laundry detergents, but also to education. 
and issues and all kinds of ideas and political candidates for that matter. And so I thought to myself, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out how to do that. And that was the beginning of my my path. And, and when you think about all of the really smart and talented people in marketing and advertising, uh, and you're the first one to have that idea. It's it's amazing. Like nobody else had that idea, and thank goodness you did because so many good things have come from it. It's incredible. Uh, yeah. Well, I think others did. Um, well, they or they didn't have the courage to act on it, right? Which is they probably yeah, did have the idea, but maybe yeah, they didn't have your courage. I guess. I guess. There's a famous football coach, and he was talking about football, and he said, um, "You got to be smart enough to play the game." And dumb enough to think it's important. <laughs> and um, I thought to myself, all these people that I compete with and that I work with, they're smart. They're smart people. But this is not important. And that's that's where I was. That's great. Uh, Eric, I want to get you into the conversation because uh, I had read that you had started out on a path to be a musician. Uh, and actually, you were a pretty successful musician with an indie band. Uh, but that there were some uh, twists and turns in terms of things going on in your family that led you into cooking. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was successful, but I'll take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> the music was always my main passion. Uh, I had was playing piano from an early age. How early? How, how old? Um, six. Really? Seven. Okay. Good. Um, and I was always one of those kids that just um, um, I didn't practice, but I always managed to pull it together last minute. Um, but. I loved playing music, and I, and I started my first band in sixth grade with a bunch of guys that um, I had known from school. And with that same group of people, we played music together for the next 15 years through high school and through college. Yeah, it was a, a lot of fun, and, and working in restaurants is how I supported that, that lifestyle. And then in 2007, I graduated from the University of Mary Washington, and I wanted to move to Washington, D.C., uh, and so there was this restaurant that was opening there in Northeast D.C. called Sticky Rice. And I was already really familiar with that concept because they had a, a Sticky Rice in Richmond, Virginia, where our band played a lot. And there was a guy that, um, that owned that restaurant called John Yamasha. And I just thought he was the coolest dude in the world. They would all, Sticky Rice was at a lot of the um, big Richmond concerts, rolling sushi. Everyone looked cool, had tattoos. They looked like me. They were all Asian-Americans. And I was really fascinated in, in, uh, by them and that concept. And I basically made the pitch to be their general manager. Um, I had no management experience. I was mostly just a line cook or a bartender or a server. They gave me the opportunity, and I moved to D.C. And then once I moved to D.C., the culinary career kind of just took over my music life, and I kind of just kept pursuing that passion. But no, 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 cul- no, uh, no formal culinary training. No, I was just um, – Incredible. I just worked at restaurants to make money. I liked it. It has a lot of the same tangibles. You get to be creative. You're entertaining people. Um, you're using a lot of the same thought processes. Um, and so the switch wasn't that big of a deal. What's really interesting is there's like a good chunk of people in my life that knew me and supported me when I wanted to be a musician. And then there's a big chunk of people in my life now who've never even seen me play an instrument. So like my wife, for example, has never seen me. Really? And what did you play? Uh, I played piano and guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And she's never seen you play. Yeah. I played, I played like one <laughs> jam session with her uncle and we played House of Rising Sun for like two hours. And he kept wanting, he kept wanting me to guitar solo. And I was like, I, I don't even know how to Eric, do that anymore. Eric, you know what we have to talk about um, offline one of these days are all the other chefs out there who are musicians. And there's there are a lot, lot of them. them. Yeah. There's a lot of you, Bruce Kalman and Duff Goldman. And, you know, I think there's there's something there. We should bring them all together, 
for a you know sort terrible of terrible concert. Food, a, a, well, or or a, or a great concert with yeah. great food. So we, we should think this, about that. It's probably this thing that Eric touched on, which is this notion of creative expression, right? right. I mean, you're somebody who who needs to express your creativity, and you could do it through music, you could do it through food. One of the other things that always strikes me is the number of chefs. Uh, I don't know if either of you know this, but we've talked to so many of them on Ad Passion Stir who started out as pre-med. I bet there's, I bet we've had two dozen chefs on this show who started out to be doctors. And one of the things that comes up a lot is that folks were kind of going down one path and then they realized that they really had this love of cooking and almost in a way that you described, uh, Bill Novelli, about, you know, I want to do something that, that really nourishes me and what I think is important. Um, we've seen so many people who have then made some kind of, you know, early career detour or decision to, no, I'm going to do what I've always loved to do, which is to cook and some memory of their parents or their grandparents. And in fact, with with you, Eric, I'd read that there was a point at which I think it was a grandfather of yours in Taiwan had, had become ill and you started going back there and reconnecting to Taiwanese cuisine. Uh, was that a, a an important influence also? Yeah, I have like being uh, half Chinese, I'm or half Taiwanese or Asian American has a whole plethora of identity issues. I was born in Taiwan and my mom moved to the States for a few years to kind of get us set up. So I lived with my grandparents in Taiwan while my mom immigrated to the United States, got a job, um, got housing and got everything situated. So when she was ready to have me come join her in the U.S., I was about four. And so my grandparents raised me in Taiwan. My mom would come back and forth. But for my early ages, I was raised by my grandparents. And so when my grandfather was ill in about 2010, I was already living in D.C., and I was going back and forth every year from about 2007 to 2010. And he was really sick. And this is when I really kind of started reconnecting with who I was as an Asian American or my Asian roots because for about 20 years or so, it was really just about my own personal ego and wanting to be a musician, and that's really all that mattered. Um, and so I just kind of started connecting to these identities and these cultural roots that I had neglected for so long. And that's where the concept of Tokyo Underground came, which was this noodle shop um, that we opened in Northeast D.C. And that mission there was really just an expression of who I was at that point in time in my life. And it kind of like the restaurant was birthed from that. You, you mentioned these identity issues. What does that feel like for somebody who's one part Asian, one part American? How, do, how should people understand it? Because I would say many of us, including me, don't, you know, I, and I'm, I'm sure there's some struggle attached to that, but I don't really know what that's like. I, I want, I'm wondering if you could describe it for us. I think it's like our particular story is interesting because when my mom remarried and plus when she had me for her second marriage, both husbands were Americans. And that already has its own kind of, especially in the 70s and the 80s, its own kind of stigma, right? Her her brother married Asian, her sister married Asian, and that's you kind of want to have this trajectory of lineage. And my mom's always kind of been her own free spirit. And then you're just you're never Asian enough for some Asians. You're never American enough for some Americans. And that you always kind of tiptoe that battle. Right? And you feel it. I mean, you're conscious of it. Yeah, it's, it's palpable, especially when you're for you. young. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad was in the Navy. We lived in Japan. They have that same, especially politically, with with World War II, um, the relationship between Americans living in Japan. And anytime you have um, war territories and 
stuff like that with American bases in a foreign country. There's always kinds of those the kind of mixed race issues. But do you feel that you lean more towards identifying with the Asian because you're in the States, which is not Asia, obviously. And I'm thinking about that as my daughter's half Mexican. Mm-hmm. And from a very early age, she was particularly interested in her Mexican heritage and all things Mexico for, for the reason, you know, that I'm suggesting that she's not surrounded by her, you know, her other side of her culture. Do you feel that way? I think that like my late mid to late 20 was definitely like, let me figure out what like my true authentic roots are. And now that I have kids and then as I've gotten older in my career and it's kind of always culminates into like people ask me what my culinary style is. And I always just respond that I cook American food. <laughs> you know, Chinese have been in America for as long as anyone as long as any other immigrants have been in this country. When we started this country, we built the railroads. We founded all these different institutions in the United States. And there's not one single person that doesn't have a classic American memory that evolves around having Chinese food. So that's what I always express. And I think that's more how I feel now is like I have this deep cultural heritage, but I really just feel American. That cultural heritage is an American story to me. That's that's powerful, Eric. That's very powerful. I mean, you know, there's this cliche that everybody has an immigrant story. Well, of course we do. Um, and one I like to tell, um, and I told this the other day, I was in a room full of people, and all of a sudden everybody started talking about their immigrant stories. And and so I told one of my own. I said, you know, when my maternal grandfather was on the boat, as they called it, in steerage on the way over here from Italy, he was trying to practice his English. And uh, he got to Ellis Island, and they said, what's your name? His name was De Cinque, which in Italian means five. And he said, my name is De Fife." He was trying to say five, and they wrote it down, D-E, capital F-I-F-E, and that became the family name. That was the name. And the other day, I was talking to my cousin, who's the family genealogist, and he said, nah, that didn't really happen. He (laughs) said, they just changed their name to fit in. He said, that's a myth, and I said, I'm going with a myth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like that one better. So, Bill, when uh, we left off the part of the conversation we were having with you, you were talking about this decision you'd made to take the skills that you'd honed in the marketing world and apply them to uh, more social purpose. Where, where did that lead? I mean, I know where you are now, but what were, the, what were some of the examples, I guess, of the way in which you were able to make a difference doing that? Well, the first thing it did was to lead to the Peace Corps. Now, I didn't go to Mozambique. I didn't go to Colombia. I came to Washington. That's how I got here. And that's what year in the Peace Corps? Oh, way back. It was... Uh, so who was president? So, so, well, <laughs> uh, Nixon was president, and... Uh, the the uh, the host countries loved the Peace Corps, but they were saying, uh, "Could you give us fewer art history majors, and could we have some nurses and some MBAs and some people who understand agriculture? Could we have some older volunteers, and can we have some people who look like us?" And so my job was to help market, that is to say, reposition the Peace Corps. So that's how I got to Washington. I got out of the you know soap and dog food business. Uh, but I was able to apply marketing skills to what I considered an issue, an important issue. What's the maximum age these days for the older serving Peace Corps Amer- people? Maximum? Yeah. Do, do they have a, like, you can't no, serve after a certain no, age? You know, Billy, uh, um, Jimmy Carter's mother was a Peace Corps volunteer. That's right. I mean, I don't think there is a, a maximum age. I mean, you've got, the Peace Corps is a tough job. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a job for people of all ages. 
I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you know, it's when I think of my regrets, you know, which I don't have a lot of, but that is one that I haven't <laughs> served, you know, in Peace Corps because it's you've served, it, Debbie. You've served. Oh, I've served. No, I know, I have. Um, I'm very proud of that. But the idea of being in another country for two years and not not teaching not teaching English, but something right. a little bit more, you know, in right. my view, substantive. Right. Um, well, you know, maybe I, I'll still do it. Who well, knows? I hope you do. I, I did some good research there, and one of the things that I learned was. The one thing that's at the top of the level of concerns of returned Peace Corps volunteers is they're afraid that the sand will blow over their tracks. And all the work they did over two years in Country X will be forgotten. And that's the exact same problem that we all face at this table today when we think about social issues Mm -hmm. and social change. You know, how do you sustain it? It's very hard to do. So let's segue, Bill, to the things that you have chosen to do or that you are able to do when asked or when they've been your ideas. Um, and, and talk about in terms of this, I guess, the social impact that you've been able to have through this very innovative use of marketing. What are some that you're proudest of or that you think have been the most impactful? Well, um, you know, after I came here to the Peace Corps, um, I had a partner uh, who had the same career that I had, marketing and advertising, New York, London. And uh, he and I decided we were going to start a company. And we said, okay, uh, what's our niche? What's our company going to be about? And we said, well, we know marketing. And what's Washington about? Washington, we thought, was about health and social issues. That shows how naive we were. I mean, we all, we all know what Washington's about, right? It's about money and politics and power and sex. But we were naive. We didn't know any of that. So, so we we started um, a company to apply marketing to health and social issues. This is Porter Novelli. This is Porter Novelli, yeah. And uh, that's how we started it. That's how we grew it. Our client base became that, and we did we did some really interesting, I'll call it pioneering work in social marketing, and th- and that was uh, the the platform or the foundation pretty much for everything. And I am enormously proud of the campaign for tobacco free kids. You you and Debbie are right about that. Yeah, and say a little um, bit about what it is, because not everybody might know. Okay. So um, uh, way back in the, uh, the mid-90s, uh, the, the head of the uh, Food and Drug Administration, whose name was David Kessler, came out with a novel idea. And what he said was, he said, nicotine is a drug. Cigarettes are drug delivery devices. We regulate those, and therefore we regulate tobacco. And the tobacco industry said, the hell you do. And a giant fight broke out. And the public health community asked me, they said to me, you know, we're, we're disorganized. We need to fight back. We need to defend FDA. We need to, we need to do something. Uh, and, and here's what they, they said. Can you start a tobacco institute for the good guys? And I said, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the American Cancer Society and the American Heart Association and a few others, you know, we, we put together the resources. We put together the team. And we started attacking the tobacco industry. But using kids as the tip of the spear? Well, we use kids as the tip of the spear in the sense that we thought, you know, what we have to do is we have to drive down kid and adult smoking. But if we put kids up front, tip of the spear, it's going to be harder for the tobacco industry to push back. Describe what some of the impacts of that have been. Well, um, I can't, you know, no, nobody can attribute or, or quantify, uh, you know, uh, everybody's contribution. 
But the campaign for tobacco-free kids was the catalyst. What year was that? Uh, we started it in late six, uh, 95, late 95. That was right at the at the height. And, you know, there was another thing going on, which was kids smoking was at alarmingly high levels. It was like at 33% of all kids smoked in this country. And Joe Camel was better known in some places than Santa Claus. What we had on our hands was an epidemic. Sometimes they say, uh, you know, the, the worst thing you can waste is a crisis. Well, we had a crisis. We just basically attacked, and we put together a great coalition. And then we got a big break, which was that the state attorneys general sued the tobacco industry. And the head of Philip Morris, who uh, was an Australian, decided that what they needed was certainty. The best thing for their business is knowing the business environment in which they operate. So they said, okay, we'll go along. We'll, we'll negotiate with the attorneys general, and we'll come up with a deal. And we, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, participated in that. So we come up with this deal, and this was uh, back in the days of the Clinton administration. And it's a long, long story, but we lost uh, national tobacco control legislation by two votes in the Senate. But we really uh, had a profound effect in terms of the country and in terms of kids smoking and adult smoking. And we ended up with a, with a set of formulas, sort of like what I think you all use. You know, raise the price. I mean, that drives down smoking almost instantly. Ban smoking in public places. Help adults quit. You know, work to keep children from becoming addicted. Uh, really try to curb tobacco marketing. And, and we ended up with that formula, and it's being used all over the country and now in other parts of the world, and it's made a profound difference. I was a smoker and the, my whole life, right, until I got pregnant at like a late age of like 44 years old. And I smoked from like 12, you know, to all, all those years. And I remember um, what helped me before I quit, I cut back significantly because you couldn't smoke anywhere anymore. <laughs> and, and it was actually fine. I remember talking to my friends about this. It was like, can't smoke in the office, can't smoke in, you know, the restaurants. The airplane. And, and it really made a huge yeah, difference. You can imagine that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> we would, in the airplane. Anyway, yeah. oh, <laughs> airplanes used to be filled with smoke. You I got one that you it. won't believe. Like every I, single person was Billy, smoking. do you remember? On a six-hour flight. Do you remember when I had back surgery? I smoked in the hospital. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> God, I, had, I asked for a smoking hospital room. Please, this is what we're talking about here. You know, with all the progress that's been made on um, tobacco as we think of it in the traditional cigarette sense. Now there's vaping and there's electronic cigarettes. Has the industry found another way to kind of get around this? And what do we do to sustain and make sure we really nail down the progress that the campaign for tobacco-free kids made? There's been absolutely tremendous progress in what we might call combustible cigarettes, you know, the ones you fire up. Uh, kid smoking is down at like 5 or 6%. Adult smoking in this country is you know, 15%, I mean, tremendous progress. And now along comes Juul and these vaping companies. And um, the uh, the kids are vaping at much higher levels than they're smoking. Uh, vaping is bad for kids. Uh, first of all, it's, it's heavy in nicotine. Nicotine is bad for adolescent brains, and it's addictive. And so uh, what's happened is that uh, this is a new menace. You can never let your guard down. And then behind that... The tobacco industry has a new technology they call heat don't burn, which is insidious. And what it does basically is it enables you to to light a cigarette uh, or the equivalent of a cigarette and get what they call the full flavor without all the carcinogens. Well, nobody knows how many carcinogens or how fatal or how difficult 
uh, a, a risk factor this is. So um, we're fighting the vaping industry right now. And uh, the biggest culprit is Juul. Now the FDA's after Juul, the uh, public health community's after Juul, and now they've they've basically uh, turned what they claim is a new leaf, and they're saying, oh, you know, we didn't mean to addict all these kids. What we're really doing is trying to get adults to quit regular cigarettes. And then they sold a third of their company to the parent firm of Philip Morris. And what I like to say is, hey, you know, don't take it personally. It's just business. So... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, I think back to something. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what I did. I I quit smoking after my son was born, and I have a naturally addictive personality. If it was drugs and alcohol in my 20s, and then when I quit that, I started smoking, and then when I quit smoking, I started vaping. In between smoking and vaping, I had a really gross toothpick habit. <laughs> where I was like, it's might have been the safest of all of them, though. One, right? But it was like chewed up toothpicks everywhere, all over the house, in my pockets, in my jackets. I totally understand the risks of it, mostly because like I have no idea what I'm putting in my body. <laughs> but you're an adult. Yes. That helps. At least you're not a kid. Uh, well, you, you know, Bill, I worked for Senator Gary Hart for uh, many years, and he often used to quote a writer named John Buchan, who uh, wrote at the end of one of his uh, biographies of Montrose, uh, no great cause is ever completely won or completely lost. The battle must always be renewed and the creed restated. Uh, and as you said, you can't let your guard down. These, these, you know, if you've been in Washington for any length of time uh, fighting these battles, you know that they come around again, and you got to keep fighting them. We need to live by that by that motto. But what I'm I'm so interested in when we had Leslie Crutchfield on our show from Georgetown talking about her book, why some social movements are successful and others aren't. So drilling down into those those pillars that people can apply to their own social movements. And what are the things that don't work? You really have to build a grassroots. It's very hard to to make social change without that. And, um, and, and this would be any cause, right? Well, like I think it, it is. Does it apply I mean, if, to everything? I think, it, I think yeah. it is. And if you look at, if you look at uh, whatever you want to call it, gun rights or gun control or gun safety, you know, what you see now is that um, after many years, the NRA is being challenged and that there is a growing grassroots for gun safety. Last summer, I had the privilege of going with you all to that uh, Indian reservation, the Flathead Indian yep, Reservation. In Montana. While I was in Montana, I went to a gun show. A big gun show just to see what it was like. You know, these are good people. These are these are not crazy people, but they worship the Second Amendment. And we have to figure out how we're going to come to grips with this terrible problem that we have. And, uh, you know, what Leslie would say is we've got to have a grassroots. We've got to appeal not just to uh, to people, but we've got to appeal to policy. And so we need to find the right formula. I, th- I think you all uh, pursue that. And I would imagine it would be those gun owners that we would that would have to be uh, sort of rising in the leadership around gun safety. You know, gun. It, yeah, that or just exactly like how you did your tobacco campaign. It's it's really you got to go generation. If you're forty plus, your mind's made, right? Mm-hmm. 40, you almost have 50. to skip down a generation. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. you know you need to go. You need to go down a generation where you're just re- rewiring their brains. To think about the world differently. I mean, you asked him how you measure success on the tobacco campaign is, you know, just thinking back about it, you don't realize how much we don't smoke anymore until you go to another country. It's right. everywhere. You know, yeah. and, and, and it's everywhere. Yeah. Nonstop. In, That's right. You know, and then you're like, wow, like America can be and has been the forefront of social change. 
and it's possible, right? But yeah, it's like you kind of just skip. So you have to kind of some of these big issues. You just need to skip a generation. Well, I think I think you're on target, Eric. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my life, and I think you all pursue it, is that we can move the mountain. I mean, you know, there was a time when when the tobacco industry owned the Congress, and they owned half the ad agencies and half the law firms in D.C. Uh, and in New York and in Chicago. Uh, and look at what's happened today. And I think that's going to happen with guns. I think it's going to happen with all these big social issues that we have to worry about. But, you know, we've got to start from saying we can do it. How long did it take? What, what, like what was the kind well, of uh, – It took 50 years. I mean the Surgeon General's report in 1964 said, you know, smoking kills people. It, it took 50 years. But it doesn't have to take 50 right, years. Right, right. And let's tease out a little bit the – I guess what I think of as kind of the chicken and egg between government action and – creating a, a cultural shift, which I, I feel like in many ways you were able to do through marketing. Uh, in some ways, it's not just one or the other. I think it's got to be both. It seems like you were able to almost set a climate that policy then followed. Is that, that fair? Well, here's how I see it. Because I have a marketing background, you know, if you talk to a classic marketing person, they'll say, well, you know, we've got this marketing mix. And we manipulate our marketing mix and we appeal to a specific target audience and we get them to try our product and change their behavior. And so that's how marketing people think. And it took me a long time to go from there to say, no, that, that's correct at the individual level, at the kid level or you know, uh, the individual level. But we need to operate at the environmental level as well. Uh, we need to change social norms, social expectations. Uh, around smoking or around kid hunger or whatever it may be. And I think the powerful levers for that are policy, the media, and technology. And I think Eric's right. Things are faster now. Technology's changed now. But policy coupled with grassroots, coupled with individual behavior change is is my idea of the right recipe. So you, there's got to be a policy component because some people could look at Bill Novelli and I know some people look at Share Strength that way and say, well, you know, maybe government's not really necessary. You all are able to accomplish a lot on your own. And, and in fact, on our case, we're not accomplishing it on We're actually leveraging yes. the resources of government to, yeah. to make these changes. Yeah, I think you've got a great formula. Eric, it's totally different, but I'm just thinking of a parallel to the cultural shift that you've created uh, in spoken English um, because you're – well, I'll let you tell it, but you're – am I saying this right? It's um, tachi no moya. Tachi say it again. Tachi ni moya. Tachi no moya. It yeah. means to stand up and eat. Let, but let well, Eric say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I do I want to learn. Tachi no moya. Because that's, that's a different way of eating. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what happens at Spoken English? Just so Spoken English is one of my, is one of my two restaurants at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan. Uh, the main one is Brothers and Sisters, which functions as the kind of traditional lobby restaurant. Right down the street from my apartment, so I've been there a bunch. Thank you so much. I hope yep. it's consistent. I love it. That's like my nightmare. <laughs> and um, and then Spoken English is kind of like the crown jewel of our, of our uh, restaurants in the sense that it's just so different. And that's kind of how all of our places have always panned out. But uh, it's it fits 12 to 16 people. It's two kind of high counters. Um, and you kind of stand and have your meal. And this kind of goes back to when I lived in Japan, and I've seen it a lot in, in Taiwan, and, and then you actually see it a lot in Europe too. It's just these little places where you're just having a snack and a drink, and it's a really tiny spaces, whether it's like a little baguette with ham and an espresso, or if you're having some skewers, it's pretty global. But they're usually around kind of like blue-collar working spots 
where maybe a lot of taxi guys hang out or police stations or big train hubs where people are just going in and out and they just want to have like one more thing before they kind of go home and unwind. Um, so we kind of took that concept and was like, okay, let's make it a whole dinner experience. The sell that we always say is like, how many times have you gone to your friend's house and it happens to be your friend who has the best renovated kitchen, right? And they've invited you for dinner, but you actually never make it to the dinner table. You're just hanging around in the kitchen island. The The food is all there. You're just having wine and you're talking and you're having a great time and you've had a an amazing dinner, but you've actually never sat down and ate because you're with people. It feels you different to yeah. do that. It really yeah. does. Um, <laughs> let's talk about what's next. Uh, you've got three restaurants. Eric, uh, anything uh, addition in mind? It sounds like you've got your hands full and you've got a couple of young kids, right? Yeah, I'm at this. I'm at a personal crossroads right now. I feel maybe, maybe similarly to where you were before you made the big switch. Is just my, you know, five year plan had all in 2011. Seidel Group from the who opened up, who are my partners at the Line Hotel, they approached me six months after I had opened my first restaurant. They had this great guy named Tanner Campbell. And he was kind of like their talent acquisition guy, and, and Seidel Group was rapidly expanding. And they approached me six years, six, seven years before we finally opened the hotel project. So I had been a part of that hotel project since the beginning of my culinary career. And so that was always kind of like my big plan was just focus on getting that open. And so when it opened, I would be in the best position to make sure I delivered an amazing product for a, a big corporate client. And we were really thinking, you know, really far in advance and, and making sure that I developed myself. So when I have 200 employees, I could know how to function. Right now, I'm just trying to build my credit so I can buy a house. That's like... That's a goal. That's a, that's like, oh, I've always taken care of other people and forget to take care of myself. So... That's like a big goal for this year that, you know, my wife and I are working on, just making sure that, like, we've accomplished all these things, but, you know, we don't have much for ourselves, so we're going to start there. There's a um, legendary restaurateur in Boston, um, a chef named Gordon Hammersley, uh, and he closed his restaurant uh, after about 25 years just a, a couple years ago. But the thing I loved about Gordon is he had one – he was a celebrity chef, kind of, you know, as they're called – but he had one restaurant, and you knew when you ate there that Gordon was going to cook for you. And he, like you said, he didn't want to be Danny Meyer. He didn't want to be, a, you know, an empire. He wanted to be connected to both the, the cooking and the food and the people that he cared about. Um, and it's a it, it's a different model than the one that seems to be in fashion today. But I have a feeling it's a very rewarding one for a lot of folks. Yeah, there's one guy in Washington D.C. that I definitely look up to. Outside of obviously everyone loves and respects Jose Andres, but I, I really appreciate Johnny Monis from Comey, Little Cero, because he doesn't do anything. Not in the sense like that's, I, I don't want to do anything, but he just really is just passionate about his restaurants mm -hmm. and that's it. He's always at his restaurants. He's, um, and he just focuses on that. He's not social. He's not out, you know, being crazy. He's just like very 100% in tune yeah. to his restaurants and he's always there. We went to our, we just we went to vacation at the beginning of January, and we went to Arpege as a walk-in, which is crazy. We just kind of walked in. Where's this? In in Paris. It's a, like, three Michelin oh, okay. star restaurant. And we had a lunch <laughs> reservation. That's uh, great. We had a lunch reservation for a Thursday, but I accidentally booked it on the day that we were going to fly out. And we were we would get charged the um, 
the cancellation fee. Uh-huh. So I was like, let's go Wednesday. Let's just stop by Wednesday because we're close and cancel the reservation. And they're like, oh, well, we actually just had a cancellation. So take these seats. But it's like two times the price at dinner. But you can't really – it'd be too embarrassing to be like, no. Right, right. <laughs> I, I just want the lunch price. <laughs> um, but then Alan Passard is one of the most famous chefs in the world, created the Arpeggio egg, which is why we wanted to go there. I wanted to eat one of these iconic dishes. It's Monday night. It's 10 degrees outside. And he's working the room. You know, he's, he went to every single table twice. He's one of the most famous chefs in the world. And it's like, what are you doing here on a Monday night? He's I, he's in tune with what yeah. he loves to do. And that's That's how life, you have right? three Michelin stars for 30 that's, years. That's right. right you know, so. Bill Novelli, you're teaching and uh, very involved with the Global Social Enterprise Initiative. Uh, tell us about your uh, the class that you teach. I have a feeling it's one that a lot of us should be taking. Uh, no, no, no. You could teach it, Billy. Um, I, I teach um, leadership. Uh, corporate social responsibility. I have a nonprofit management uh, course, but I'm a I'm a happy camper. Um, we're talking about little kids here and so forth. I'm dealing with big kids, so I'm dealing with these MBAs, and I go home every night with a song in my heart because they understand that there's more than one bottom line. Sure, they may go to Google, they may go to uh, Goldman Sachs, but they're going to make a difference. And they want, you know, this is almost a cliche at this point, but I think it's absolutely true. They want purpose. They want to work in an organization that doesn't just have a profit, but it also cares about people. It cares about the planet. Um, And so um, I feel really good about that. And what I want to do is I want to help them and help companies to figure out how they can make their core business purpose-oriented. That's a big assignment. Yeah. But I think you're right. There's the, there's an appetite for it and a climate for it. Uh, and just one last thing. Aren't you also working on advanced care and kind of end-of-life issues? I just want to make sure I, uh, yeah, there's a resource there that people should know about that we put it out here. This is a gigantic issue whose time has come. And, you know, what we have here is an aging nation. We have people pouring into the healthcare system. A lot of these people are frail elderly, multiple chronic diseases. And in a nutshell, uh, whenever you are seriously ill, and most of these people are frail elderly, they want to be at home. They want to be with their loved ones. They want to have their pain managed. They want to have their spiritual needs addressed. But number one, they don't want to bankrupt their families. And in our wonderful country, we give them the opposite. So we recycle them through the hospital. We give them all kinds of aggressive care they don't understand. Oftentimes, doesn't prolong their life, doesn't improve the quality of life. And then they die at a huge cost to their families and to the country. And so the organization that I co-founded and co-chair, the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care, is about closing that gap. And I work a lot on that. Website that people can find? Yeah, yeah, Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. Uh, The nickname for it or the abbreviation is CTAC. Please go to the website. Excellent. And before uh, Debbie asks the toughest question of the day, Mm. I know what it is. Tell us how we find your three restaurants, Eric. The best way to keep in touch is just through my Instagram, at Eric Bruner Yang, E-R-I-K-B-R-U-N-E-R-Y-A-N-G. Where, Eric, do you go that is like your go-to little place, maybe a place no one's ever heard of in Washington, or a place that people know but isn't kind of like, you know, the top top ten restaurants? So what's your kind of go-to, maybe little hidden gem in Washington? We, our family, we, we order from this Chinese carryout on Grubhub called Young Chow. Um, And that's like, the kids like it. It's easy. We order the same four things once a month for five years. 
and they have a location in Capitol Hill, and, and my wife is like, we should go one day and eat there. And I'm like, no, it's going to ruin, ruin the experience. It's going to ruin right, the mystique right. of like right. our classic carryout. I'm glad, Eric, that you mentioned Grubhub. They have a partnership with Share Our Strength right now. Uh, I think you'll appreciate this. Bill Novelli. Inadvertent uh, sponsor plug. I like it. Well, it's great. Uh, <laughs> and they, they kind of came up with this. They got very excited about this notion that uh, every time you order on Grubhub, uh, you can round up. So if your order is $19.50, they'll say, do you want to round up uh, an additional $0.50 cents to $20 with the uh, proceeds going to Share Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign? That's turned into, in just the last three months, $3.6 million dollars to fund the No Kid Hungry campaign and to make sure more kids are getting school breakfast. So um, when you're doing the volume that a company like Grubhub is doing and you have as many loyal customers as they do, uh, and they were looking, Bill, to your point, uh, they had a great business model, but they said, let's infuse this with purpose and make a difference in the community. And Grubhub's making an enormous difference, $3.6 million. So I, I always really knew I that. always knew that you guys were geniuses. So well, I and I wish we had something to do with it, but uh, Grubhub, to their credit, uh, came to us with this big idea: cause marketing, uh, cause yeah. marketing. So the, uh, uh, I see the impact of your program every every day when I take my daughter to school. Hmm. The breakfast program, and yeah, and you know the community, you know, in Northeast DC where my daughter goes to school at Wheatley. There's nothing more important than those kids getting that that breakfast, and they and they continue it on through the summer. And it's and you know I just I see it every day, so we really oh, appreciate you hear. guys, even in how, just like you just start something that forces other people to make it an important issue to themselves, whether it's whether you've directly worked with that school or not. Schools across America have rated have. I mean, I, I listen to the announcements and hear what they they eat every day. It sounds amazing. My school lunch it's was nothing. Really it's really changed. Right. It's no, really like, changed. Yeah, it's I changed think yesterday they had falafel and all of these things, and I'm like, this is just amazing that you know people have really thought about this and, yeah. and want to make a difference because some of these this is the only thing they eat all day. Well, that's great to hear. And as everybody at the table had had a chance to say what they're most proudest of, I would say for Debbie and I and the whole team at Share Our Strength, three point. Uh, 3.2 million kids added to the school breakfast program in just the last six or seven years. And kids who I think probably look like exactly the kids you see every day, Eric, and who have a chance now, uh, they, they may be poor, their families may be poor, uh, their families may be dealing with food insecurity, but they've got a chance because they've been fed to start to break this cycle and to pay attention in school and to do well. And that's what we're saying. Uh, thank you both so much for a great conversation. Uh, Eric Brunner-Yang, really a treat to have you here. Thanks for your support of Share Our Strength and what we do. And, I learned a lot today, so thank you well, for having we me. We did too. Uh, and Bill Novelli, uh, mentor to many of us. You were actually a mentor to our president and CEO, Tom Nelson, who worked with you for many years at AARP. You mentioned him um, as somebody who teaches it, uh, guest teaches your class. But Bill, you've, you've been a pioneer and a groundbreaker. And you know, there's many of us who have learned from you and I think have aspired to achieve what you've achieved. So thank well, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you and, and Debbie and to the fabulous work that you do. I I'm, I'm just want to echo Eric and say you guys are great. Well, we're nothing if not stubborn, right? We've been at it a long <laughs> That's time. Right. So. That's right. Um, and Debbie Shore, thanks for being yeah, with us today. Yeah, great show. As always, great good show. To be here. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Go to our website, addpassionandstir.com, and find uh, other episodes. You could rate them. You can rank them. You can subscribe. Let your friends know about it. Um, thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, Woody, and to Kelly Griffin and the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign for the work that you do and for making this podcast possible. 
Thanks again for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.